I'll go ahead and hit the theme song button. We'll we'll do the thing. Yeah, we'll do the thing. Everybody and welcome to another episode of Cinescope. This is episode 99 of Cinescope, and we are approaching episode 100. Uh, we had to adjust plans a little bit because of uh, technology failures, <laughs> but uh, we're, we're still going strong to talk about the How to Train Your Dragon trilogy leading into episode 100, which is very important and special to me, and I am so glad to be doing it with none other than Eric Skull. Eric, how are you doing? Hey, I'm good. Uh, thank you for having me back. Yes, sir. I am just glad that as of now, you have seen the How to Train Your Dragon trilogy, and I could not be happier because I've been trying to get it's you to true. watch it, a, for a while. A life's journey, a life's journey is complete. Uh, yes. is, is complete now. <laughs> you've 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 gotten me to watch one of your favorite trilogies. So I, I, I well, I'm I consider myself better off for it. Well, I am glad to hear that. I'm really excited to hear your thoughts because all I know so far is that this is your favorite. The third one is your favorite of the three, and so I'm really excited yes. to dive into it because... No, go ahead. Yes, as of the two How to Train Your Dragon films that there are, uh, this was The <laughs> Hidden World is very much the best Train Your Dragon film. I, I'm, I'm, I'm I am interested to, to know that your opinion towards two hasn't much improved in the, the time since we last talked. I'm thrilled. Yeah, no, Hidden World is, is great. <laughs> okay, we'll talk about that a little bit. This is going to be a more traditional episode of Cinescope because How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, the third installment and final installment in this trilogy, is a movie that we haven't discussed on Cinescope before, whereas the first two How to Train Your Dragon movies were sort of revisits for us. And so it was a more free-form, amalgus discussion that we didn't plan a whole lot for. We were just sort of talking, and that's why in our discussion over How to Train Your Dragon 2, which Eric loved, (laughs) there's a little bit of arguing that happens in that one what movie was this i don't remember this i don't remember anything about this movie. what was what was going yeah okay well we're going to go ahead and jump into it because this is going to follow our normal format this is how to train your dragon the hidden world it released on february 22nd of 2019 so it's just almost two years old at this point it was directed by Dean DeBlois, who was the co-director of Lilo and Stitch and the first How to Train Your Dragon, along with Chris Sanders. And he also directed a documentary called Haima over the band Seeger Rose, which features Yonsi, who is heavily featured in the How to Train Your Dragon series. So go figure, there's that connection. But he also directed the second How to Train Your Dragon movie, and he is set to direct an upcoming Micronauts movie based on a comic series, I believe. It was written by Deploy. He also wrote the scripts for Lilo and Stitch and the, the trilogy and is writing the upcoming script for Micronauts. And the music is done by returning John Powell Amazing, amazing music for this series yet again. Uh, he also composed for Ants, Chicken Run, and Shrek with Harry Gregson Williams, The Road to El Dorado, Kung Fu Panda, and Kung Fu Panda 2 with Hans Zimmer, and the original Born trilogy, the new movie, Jason Bourne with David Buckley, and then How to Train Your Dragon 2, Pan, Ferdinand, and Solo. So, John Powell, very heavily involved with DreamWorks over the years, and uh, always putting forth great work. This movie stars the returning cast, the largely re- returning cast with one exception, Jay Barichel, America Ferreira, F. Murray Abraham, Gerard Butler, Kate Blanchett, Craig Ferguson, Jonah Hill, Christopher Mintzplass, Kristen Wiig, Kit Harrington, and Justin Ruppel filling in the role of Tough Nut. 
So, ah. yes, uh, TJ Miller has problems. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about our first experience in a way. I want to hear a little bit about your thoughts coming into this movie and sort of maybe what you had as far as like general expectations and then what your experience watching the movie was like. Yeah. So my first experience watching this was yesterday with my girlfriend, Meg, who's been watching along with me as I make my way through this series. And it was a welcomed return to the town of Burke, a welcome return to these characters. I was kind of just pleased that the first couple minutes of the film serve as an intro into each of their characters as they're landing on the boat and introing themselves, kind mm-hmm. of. It's almost like a, a really creative way of, of bringing you back. But yeah, I, I enjoyed sort of the experience of being taken on this new journey. I don't know what my expectations were other than the this was the trailer i can remember seeing the most in theaters when it was coming i i, I guess i was still going into the the movies in 2018 because um <laughs> i remember the the i particularly the uh the light fury mm-hmm. i remember seeing you know or or basically female toothless which was really having only been vaguely aware of toothless and how to train your dragon prior to that i'm like oh it makes sense for a third movie they do <laughs> like oh he finally found a girl version of himself mm-hmm. so like that's cool it made sense kind of in a way but my only expectations then were that it would be somehow bankrupt of a story but it was very much not i i will say and and i loved pretty much every minute of this third installment i i did say the one text i did send you which you mentioned is i said this is the best the best one i think that this movie really gets what the series is about and doesn't throw any huge 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 curveballs like the murder of a parent <laughs> in the mix like this film succeeds without the egregious blasting to death of a chief so i was very happy with it it does rip your heart out in an entirely different way though I don't know about you, but but I spend a large portion of the end of this movie crying, <laughs> and so I, I have gathered myself to to talk about the movie for the podcast, and I'll talk about oh, some well, of those feelings good. as we go. But um, I am curious, just since you mentioned it, what were Meg's thoughts on How to Train Your Dragon Two? Had she seen it before, or was it a first time watch for her? Like, was it as emotionally traumatizing for her to see Hiccup's father killed in that way as it was for you? You know, give me a minute. I'm going to ask her, Meg. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Hi. She's right here with hi. me, actually. Hello. Um, hi. Now, when we watched How to Train Your Dragon 2, was that your first time seeing 2? No, I saw number 2 in theaters. Okay, and were you as devastated as I was, uh, Chad is asking, about the death of his father? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was suffering alone. I let the record okay. state. That <laughs> I liked it. I mean, of course... Stoic is a great father mm-hmm. figure, good good chief, and it's very sad that he died. But I like when when you know so called kids movies have elements like that, like Mufasa dying mm-hmm. in The Lion King. Absolutely, that's part of the reasons why The Lion King is so important to so many people. So you're saying it was essential for the character's growth, really. Hiccup's yeah. growth and, and coming into his own. And to show that people die. 
Death is a thing. Not, well, okay. So Stoic died. <laughs> Debbie Downer. <laughs> Debbie Downer, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Meg is much more prepared uh, to have characters she loves die in popular media than I am. <laughs> I am a snowflake, as it turns out. But uh, but yes, so so that was that was the experience. Okay, then. well, great. Thank you to Meg for, for stepping in. Yeah, thanks, Meg, for coming on uh, Cinescope there. No problem. I think that's our first surprise guest on Cinescope. <laughs> <laughs> yes. My history with this trilogy at this point is pretty well known. I, I've talked a lot about how I, I first watched the first film in pieces on on a cruise ship. And when I saw the second film, I dragged my cousin, who's 10 years younger than me, to the theater to watch both the first one and the second one in a back-to-back IMAX screening. And so that was my Aww. first time. And <laughs> now I saw How to Train Your Dragon 3. I don't remember who I saw it with the first time, but... It affected me a lot, and I ended up going back and seeing it again by myself so I could cry a little bit more freely the second time. (laughs) (laughs) So I saw this in theaters twice, and I purchased the 4K Steelbook edition from Best Buy as soon as it was was available. I have all three films in that format in that beautiful Steelbook 4K, and so I'm happy to own the trilogy that way. But this was my first time watching it since I got it on 4K, which would have been about a year ago or a year and a half ago at this point. I'm not sure. And so I I remembered much of this. This wasn't an instance of me not remembering how things go, but it was of me remembering how things go and how much it affects me. And so it was a great return to this film for me. I, I looked up my thoughts on Letterboxd if people don't know what Letterboxd is, it's like a, a social network for movie watchers and you can post little reviews. And I, I just want to read a little bit of what I wrote the first time I w- watched this movie. Yeah. I said, many people have movies that they can't look at through any sort of critical lens and how to train your dragon films are exactly that for me. <laughs> <laughs> the first has long been my all time favorite animated movie. And the second one nearly matched it and in some ways surpassed it on every level. I had high expectations for the conclusion of the trilogy and my expectations were not only met but exceeded i laughed i cried i grinned i cried some more i awed but most importantly i cried (laughs) there's something about hiccup and toothless that rings with me on a deep emotional level and seeing their journey together come to an end was hugely affecting this movie was everything i wanted it to be and more and i can confidently say that the how to train your dragon trilogy is my all-time favorite trilogy and yes that places it above the back to the future trilogy as a whole, as much as I love all three of those films, I think the quality level of one, two, and three in How to Train Your Dragon for me surpasses that. And certainly it rivals like Toy Story or Lord of the Rings as great trilogies go. Yeah. But there's just something about watching this movie tonight with my own little toothless, my black cat Tucker curled up in my oh. lap while I was watching that that it, it just really hits home for me. So that there's my my viewpoint going into this movie. And so let, let's talk about some story stuff. Uh, what what yeah. do you have to say about the story first? You know, I didn't know where they were going to go story-wise after defining the relationship of the alpha, right? The presence of the alpha and how having an alpha affects dragons. That was perhaps the biggest story development in the second film. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Having that end with Hiccup basically becoming the king of all dragons, as they refer to him in this movie. <laughs> yeah. tooth, did I say Hiccup? It, I mean, tooth, I, I did it constantly when writing my notes tonight while watching. I switched Toothless yeah. and Hiccup, and it, it's, just, it's happened. They're, they're so interchangeable for me. 
Yeah, they are in a way interchangeable. And actually, that's that's an interesting part of this story is we've seen Hiccup throughout the years find Astrid and slowly get closer to her. But this film was really like, okay, now it's Toothless's time to kind of find a lady. And it's pointed out that Night Fury's supposedly mate for life, whatever mm-hmm. that means. But actually, it was pleasing to see him find somebody because we were told that Night Furies were extinct and we were given an explanation for that in the character played by F. Murray Abraham. We found out why Night Furies were so few and so hard to come by. And that was a little bit of a bonus, honestly. That mm-hmm. was that was better than I was expecting from... I think it just really tied back to the original, tied the third one to the first one a lot. And also they found a way to do a character that was in many ways not over the top. Like, this is... Grimmel, is it? Uh, yes. Is, is not a more sort of like brutish, masculine character compared with uh, the second film's villain. In fact, he's, you know, sneaky and really just kind of cold, calculating. He's got emotions, but he's very much not the same type of villain. And so I'm thrilled to kind of see... I was asking Meg, like, who's the villain in the first film? Because there is is there a central villain? And it, it might just be that, like, Hiccup's finding himself among his villagers, right? He has to convince mm-hmm. his own people that dragons are safe. So, like, the people of Burke are the villains in the first one? His father is largely the villain, or yeah. the, the antagonist it, of the first film. Right, who means well. And then you've got a second guy who's, you know, the second guy's a brutish bad guy who does not mean well. And then the third, the third guy's like this, you know, guy who's been in the shadows. And he's certainly got a creed that's not dissimilar of i want to say what the who was the villain in the second one drago yeah not not too different of a creed from drago you know dragons really exist to serve humans in grimmel's mind as well but he's kind of got an interesting way of doing it with drugging them with their own poison and kind of a, almost like a william striker x-men kind of twist mm-hmm. uh to it so i thought it was really creative i thought they really found a, a way to wedge in a convincing villain who was different from drago and and stoic and uh i really liked that i think that surface level grimmel is very similar to drago in a lot of ways but i i love picking apart the ways in which they are different and I, we'll get to that but some story things that stand out to me as well is from the very beginning of the film, you mentioned the scene where they're raiding the boat with the dragon trappers and they're freeing yeah. dragons and everything. It's clear from the start, yes, it's a good introduction to each character, but it's clear how far into excess and over-reliance these people mm. are on their dragons. The people are sloppy. The, the entire crew, aside from Hiccup and Astrid, I suppose, are pretty sloppy in their approach to freeing these dragons on this barge, and it's because of their dragons that they're able to get out of there safely. They don't do anything right, almost. And <laughs> and then as they rescue these dragons and they fly back to Burke, we almost it's almost impossible to recognize Burke from even where it was a year ago in the second yeah. film. It is garish it is overrun it is overstuffed it is too much of a good thing and that thought is solidified when they first land and everybody's celebrating and one of the larger dragons knocks over several structures and valka uh comes up to hiccup and says you know what we're, we're maybe a little bit overcrowded it's, we're, we're a little bit too over-reliant that was kind of sloppy so she she spells it out for us but th- that was a thought i had watching now as they flew in i was like man it's you almost don't even recognize this place yeah, Falca 
calls it and and they garish is the word for it like you said mm-hmm. it's just very i i like that that became sort of a, a through line that became something important that this plot was going to deal with everyone's over-reliance because if you it, you know if you're looking at it from a serious perspective the trilogy you know the first one they do not rely well well their whole society is based on you know conquering dragons and, and in the second one after they've discovered sort of like the truth about dragons it's like a a coexistence and but everybody's still learning and by the third one there's this really interdependence that doesn't necessarily benefit either side. And so you're able to, like, the people through the, throughout the film have to kind of pull back a bit. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing watching this movie is everyone in Burke loves their dragons. That's pretty obvious. Yeah. But no one is so keen to keep them and go to such desperate attempts to keep them as Hiccup is. Not even his mother, who lived with dragons by herself for many years was so keen to go to the lengths that Hiccup is trying to go to, finding this hidden world to remove themselves from this equation of people and dragons finding conflict with each other. And so when they find that after they leave Burke, after the first attack from Grimmel, and they they find this magical island that is like a mile in the sky and it's it's a perfect <laughs> outcropping for them they're like well this is perfect for us this is a lot more space we've got room for our dragons we're we're protected we're we're not as vulnerable from sea attacks it's great and they're happy to just say okay here's our new home but hiccup is still like well what about the hidden world though where we can live with our dragons forever and it, it's just not as interesting to everybody else as it is to hiccup and it's because of his his relationship with toothless that he is willing to go to those links because him and toothless depend so much on each other for so long and then when he does find the hidden world what a beautiful visual it, it reminded me oh. a lot of coco in a lot of ways that that colorful world from the the, the land of the yeah. dead and a thought that occurred to me watching tonight is the similarities between what we see in the hidden world and the Burke that we did see at the start of the film. They're both incredibly colorful and they're both teeming with dragons, but it's clear that Burke is an ill fit for the dragons, but the hidden world is truly where they belong. And that's even in contrast with the the haven that Valka had set up with the the Alpha in How to Train Your Dragon 2, where that, that was a place teeming with dragons. It was like a dragon utopia. But even that wasn't a place where dragons belonged. They were still vulnerable to human attack and vindictive people and people who sought only to kill this is a place where humans don't belong but dragons so clearly do it's very much the the if you love something let it go philosophy that hiccup comes to practice and Mm -hmm. accept right i mean he is really encouraging and throughout the film i mean hiccup and toothless two peas in a pod and 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 watching him sort of help help uh toothless out with the mating dance uh you know in in, in that scene when it comes to it like you can do it buddy you know kind of right. just stuff I, I there's so much to love in their interactions but mostly because it's it's the support it's the love and support and i think very early on hiccup recognizes the rite of passage that this is going to be and how you know finding one of his own kind was always going going to be if possible toothless's destiny and so really just supporting someone you love in in that endeavor and in in their next sort of as they move on their next stage of life and i wouldn't have expected but i i I know what you're talking about as far as 
crying uh and and i was very much brought to very wet eyes with the reunion that takes place after i guess some time has passed Mm -hmm. between toothless and and hiccup and i would not have expected them to really stay away for what appears to be five or eight years or however much it is when when they're able to both have kids of their own but the reunion scene is so so moving Mm -hmm. that it it makes it all worth it this is a film that kind of makes a bold statement and shows the value and the um i guess the reward that you get for doing the right thing and and or rather leading with empathy and care and not being selfish because that's ultimately the choice that the chief toothless has or chief hiccup has there i did it that chief hiccup has (laughs) is he can he can ask toothless to stay and toothless maybe would even Mm -hmm. even the light fury might hang around new burke for a while or you know they could have this strained relationship but but by the end of it hiccups just like i have my people and we got a lot to figure out and we're gonna say goodbye we're gonna part ways and and you belong somewhere else and that's a hell of a lot of growth Mm -hmm. moving into like character specific discussion uh i want to go in a maybe slightly atypical order from what I would normally do. Uh, just because there's a couple of characters I want to say a couple of things about, but I don't have a lot necessarily to say about them. And the first is Grimmel. The very first scene we see him, I, I, I was actually like shaking with rage. I was so angry at this person who like shows up and he like struts in and he's so full of himself. And that scene introducing him ends with the dragon lunging at him and him turning around and firing his crossbow at the dragon. And at that moment, I don't think we had any notion to believe that he was using any sort of venom or anything. I think it's very clearly meant to show that potentially this guy just killed a dragon in front of us. And he did it so cold-heartedly, so without hesitation, where in How to Train Your Dragon 2, you had Drago, who was subjugating dragons, and he was building an army. And that's what the people who Grimmel is working here for to... to capture all the dragons is that's what he's trying to do. They're trying to do is they're trying to build that dragon army. They're continuing Drago's quest, but here Grimmel's not looking to do that. Grimmel is mercilessly killing dragons for sport. He's killing night theories because that's what he did the first time he saw one and he will not rest until he they're, they're all dead. And I was just so angry at this character who had no value in these creatures. He he put no value in them. And he was so keen and just, well, I feed dragons to these dragons who I have poisoned with their own poison. And those specific dragons are tools for me, but everything else can just die. And that that was the difference for, for me between Grimmel and Drago. Was Drago was subjugating, Grimmel is just, just straight up killing. He 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 doesn't care. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's almost a perfect foil though for Hiccup's character because mm-hmm. Hiccup so deeply cares for the dragons. I mean, you're not going to find a, a human who cares more for them than than Hiccup does. So to to have Grimald sort of be devoid of all empathy is a really interesting choice because you know Hiccup's still going to try and talk him out of it. He's still going to try and talk him down or 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 win him over, but it's just going to be lost. So when it when it devolves into fighting where does that net out and i have to say like to his credit i think drago even sees the moment he's lost 
Uh-huh. And the moment he's been proven wrong when love triumphs over all. So perhaps the second film, for that reason, you know, has a bigger moment where love triumphs. And in this one, Grimmel just kind of is proven wrong and immediately falls to his death, presumably. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that it has the same moment of I've changed my mind as the second one does. So for that, I understand Grimmel like not completely living up to your expectations. Here's a thought I had while watching tonight as well. Grimmel sort of appeared to me as like an anti hiccup. He talks about how when he was a kid, he came across a night theory and he did what hiccup wasn't able to do. He killed it. Yep. And he proceeded to do that with every night theory he came across. We see Grimmel also like hiccup has a lot of technological know-how, a lot of technological prowess. And so this is almost presented as an alternate future for Hiccup. If Hiccup had grown up oh. and 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 stuck to his strengths, granted, he wouldn't have been as Viking necessarily as Stoic. He doesn't have the brawn for that. But if he had used his unique talents to further the agenda that the Vikings were pursuing at that point in time, I could very much see Hiccup eventually ending where Grimmel was. What do you think about that? Yeah, I love that. I absolutely love that. I think you're 100% correct. And that's probably that's probably written on a post-it note on a board in a writer's room somewhere. <laughs> like, you know, make a character whose hiccup if we saw that, you know, if we follow what Stoic wanted at the beginning of the first film to its logical conclusion, you get a character who's kind of cold and dead because he's secretly given up. He, he's just so s- solidly focused on evil stuff destroying life as opposed to creating and using his technology to to as a means to that end but but you know the character that would totally draw that conclusion and bring it home for audiences everywhere stoic if they hadn't killed him off uh (laughs) would be wonderful in this movie to have a line and i'm so glad he does appear in two flashbacks i feel like stoic in this film it makes me teary-eyed. It makes mm-hmm. me misty, and I'm glad they figured out something they could do to have him in. But but yeah, ultimately, if you're going to draw that comparison, I think somebody like Stoic in the modern day should should have a conversation with Hiccup and go, look, son, this Grimmel is very much like what you could have been, but you showed me there was a better way mm-hmm. kind of a thing. You know, I could see like a confidence-boosting s- scene between Stoic and, and Hiccup if, if he had not been dead. So. <laughs> But I, I like that comparison. Yeah. Well, speaking of Stoic, he was the next character I wanted to mention. And it's because what I love what this movie does in bolstering Stoic's character in my eyes. Not that I thought low of him at all. I thought he was a great father. I thought he was a great leader. He was doing everything that he thought was necessary for his people. And we saw that in the first two movies, but we get further confirmation of that in this one through the two flashback scenes. The first one is where we get the the first mention of the hidden world and it's stoic talking to hiccup as a child and of course there's the mention of hiccup being deathly afraid of the night furies oh that's funny but stoic is talking about this hidden world and his goal isn't to go and for lack of a better word, bomb it, to to go and obliterate the dragons there, he uses the phrase to seal it, to seal the dragons away so that humans and dragons will fight no more. So what that showed me was that Stoic was never killing dragons for fun. 
in the first movie, there was maybe some level of enjoyment in it because, I mean, they were killing his people. And so here he is, he's going to retaliate. And if he finds a little bit of joy in that, I, I don't necessarily fault him for that. But he's not going out like Grimmel and just killing for killing's sake, for, for the fun of it. But right. he was killing them out of necessity. He was saying, if I could... I would go find the hidden world, I would seal it, and this conflict between humans and dragons would be no more. And their their way of life would be fundamentally different at that point, because they had built so much of what they were doing around protecting their people from dragons. So that was yeah. the first way in which Stoic was severely boosted for me in this movie. And the second was in the second flashback, when Hiccup, once again a child, walks into the room and he sees Stoic crying by the fire. And how moving a moment like that for a character like stoic to show that kind of vulnerability again we saw that in how to train your dragon 2 when he had that reunion with valka but this mm-hmm. is him alone mourning and showing his vulnerability and then opening up to his son who asks him about it says dad will will, will we get a new mom he says no i don't want a new one because i loved your mother that much and so how special for hiccup to maybe he didn't have his mother growing up but there was never a doubt in his mind how deeply his father loved his mother and that was really special to me that's a really good point and and yeah you're exactly right okay sorry i I was getting a little emotional just talking about it right now yeah absolutely okay so those characters aside let's talk about hiccup so what do you have to say, uh, you've talked a little bit about it, but what do you have to say about Hiccup's journey in this movie? I think that he's really rising to the challenge of Chief. He isn't actually afraid to give an order, especially mm-hmm. even a, a controversial one in Let's Move Our Home. That's absolutely huge. And for Tough Nut to be his sort of wingman at the meeting <laughs> was actually perfect. I wasn't sure yep. where that sort of subplot was going, like, oh, I'll, sh- I'll show you how to be the perfect you know, husband to your future wife or whatever. But, but <laughs> as a wingman, it was a surprised turn of events for me and character arc that I was not expecting out of that character but 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 definitely very thrilling i i think you know hiccup is surrounded by people who care for him that hasn't changed since previous films but it's really eased into i don't know just an easy sense of life of like these are the characters their their relationship is just defined so you have the chief and then you have the people who are like really rooting for the chief to succeed Mm -hmm. so i I really liked seeing hiccup in in a position to give an order to have it largely go uncontested even though it really gets down to the the fundamentals of of who these people are you know with burke and the dragons It, it took a little bit of convincing but but everyone at least humored him. Mm-hmm. So I like that. They had their doubts, for sure. Yeah. So in the first movie, Hiccup was on a journey to to find his place among the Vikings. He wanted to be a Viking, and he wanted to show how Viking he was. And that's why he was going to kill a Night Fury, and then he couldn't do it. And so that was his journey, was finding his place among his people. In the second movie, it was about him coming to a place where he could accept that one day he's going to be chief. He's going to have that responsibility and he has to put aside some of his selfishness to, to want to explore, to want to see the world and do things by himself. And he's eventually he's forced into that position through various circumstances and he doesn't hesitate when that moment comes. He doesn't try and run away from it. When, when the time comes, he embraces it. And so this movie is about him exploring 
how he fits into that position. And there's a quote from Grimmel early in the movie. He says, they don't have a leader, they have just a boy. And so Hiccup has a lot to prove. Yes, people sort of wholeheartedly accepted him as as the chief at the end of two because well, he was Stoic's son, and they had seen what he brought the people of Burke with all the dragons. And so th- they were hopeful, and they they expected a lot from Hiccup. But like I said, and like you said, there was still a little bit to prove here. And he does end up proving himself as a strong leader. He does give orders, and they do follow them. But there is that hesitation until they find this perfect place. And everybody is like, oh, okay, well, he he did it. He found us a place, even if it wasn't exactly what Hiccup wanted. It's what they wanted, and they're happier. Everybody says this is an upgrade from where they were before, despite having lived there for, I think, was it, what was it, seven generations is what Astrid said? It was <laughs> yeah, a long time. Yeah. Then when the end of the movie comes and Hiccup makes the choice, we've got to let go of our dragons, there's no hesitation because he has won that authority with his people. They have seen how strong a leader he is, and if this person of, of all the people of Burke is letting go of his dragon, then they can do it without putting up a fight. And they they move on, they adapt, they find a new way of life. And so I, I love seeing the journey that Hiccup goes on, specifically as finding a way, or, or finding a place among his people goes. Yeah, very much so. And his relationship with Toothless in this movie, um, he has a very, I, I keep making a lot of comparison to other movies that have some similar story elements. Like there's a lot of Iron Man three in this movie where in, in that movie, Tony is struggling with who am I without the suit? And so he goes on a journey to figure out, am I special? Am I Iron Man? If I don't have my suit, that makes me Iron Man. And Hiccup is going through that journey here. Am I who I am? Am I the chief of my people if I don't have Toothless by my side? And he struggles with that. But the moment where he puts so much trust in Toothless is when he makes that tale for him. And that is such an emotional scene. That first goodbye as Toothless looks back and he makes his face like, well, is it okay? And Hiccup says, it's it's okay, go. And then we don't see toothless for a while except for his date <laughs> with the light fury and hick worries but still he he did it he it it wasn't like this big hesitating thing it was like well you found somebody you need that companionship i'm finally going to get this tail thing situated for you and go off be free and when he and Astrid stumble upon the hidden world and he sees how quickly Toothless has acclimated to being among the dragons and how he's in charge and he's got the light fury by his side and everything seems to be perfect. They fit in so well. Hiccup in that moment realizes I have to let him go. It's not a sudden revelation at the end of the movie. Halfway through this movie, Hiccup realizes that his time with Toothless is coming to an end because this is where Hiccup... This is where he, this is where Toothless belongs. And that that's so much strength that he shows in in coming to that realization. Furthermore, I like audibly cheered when I heard Hiccup say right after visiting the hidden world he tells Astrid that place is not for us. Mhm. He immediately he just and I was thinking that you're you know the the incredible approach and you're looking at the caves and the bioluminescence and the beautiful nature down there and as beautiful as it is as breathtaking as it is you get the sense that humans would just spoil it so for Hiccup to come out of there and like his first takeaway is yeah we don't 
like it's amazing we don't we don't belong there Mm -hmm. i was i was stunned that the film actually like that a character could have that much i don't know self-awareness and kind of understanding that nature is doing the right thing by giving the dragon sort of that safe haven talking about toothless in tandem with this i mean imagine being toothless who's had hiccup all these years has spent years though being the last of his kind and suddenly there's a light fury and it's uh, a mirror image of him in a lot of ways or hiccup spending all these years as toothless only companion and having toothless rely on him for for flight among other things suddenly having to compete for toothless's attention and it's like he even says at one point, am I not enough? <laughs> am I not enough for you, Tithlis? And how cruel of Grimmel to tempt Hiccup, to tempt Toothless and trap him with a potential life mate only as a way to eventually kill him. And again, there goes my hatred of Grimmel because of what he was attempting <laughs> to do with Toothless here. We see the the social struggles that, that Toothless goes through after being so long secluded from other Night Furies. He, he doesn't know the social norms or how to behave when trying to court another <laughs> Light Fury. That's a hysterical scene. It's very much like the uh, Forbidden Friendship scene in the first movie where there's just a lot of no dialogue for like four minutes and it's just really beautiful music accompanying with that and toothless in watching hiccup try to communicate hey try this try this maybe strut like this and see how it goes toothless realizes he can't rely on hiccup for everything although i guess the thing that sort of wins over the light fury is he draws the picture on the ground (laughs) and it's actually a picture this time not just a squiggle and he did learn that from (laughs) hiccup a few years ago but but still he he has to sort of just go on his own and figure it out himself and after just such a short amount of time with the light fury with the other dragons in the hidden world toothless belongs there and it, it was such a quick and obvious thing that that's where toothless needed to be yeah sort of last thing to say about toothless and hiccup at least for now that moment when hiccup and grimmel are hanging onto the light fury toothless has been knocked out he's falling he's gonna die hiccup takes off the harness that was controlling the light fury points her head in the direction of toothless and says save him yes let's go and now it's not toothless that's going to die it's it's hiccup and grimmel that are going to die and hiccup is okay with that hiccup is okay with that because his friend is going to survive and he's going to be happy with the light fury in a place where he belongs yep now thankfully the light fury does manage to save both (laughs) and that's a great scene where it mimics the scene in the first film yet again there's a lot of mirrored images from the first film Mm -hmm. in this one where she catches catches hiccup and looks under her and it's that same goofy grin that that toothless made back when he caught astrid in the first movie in the big final fight and then when hiccup finally says goodbye and all the dragons are leaving and they do the reverse forbidden friendship touch as they say goodbye forbidden friendship in the first movie ends with hiccup reaching out his hand toothless slowly moving forward and then making contact for the first time true contact mutual contact and this time it starts with them touching and then they separate and that's goodbye and Mm. it is so beautiful the way they are able to mirror the first film in this one in moments like that i love it yeah i've been talking a whole lot is there anything else you want to say about uh toothless or hiccup or any other characters at this point 
I have a ton of characters. Yeah, Astrid in mm-hmm. this one, right? I mean, what a what a wonderful character arc she's had over this trilogy. I think that kind of gets called out. She calls herself his first defender. She says to Hiccup, I was the first person to like go with you to believe you and she's just been a really good ally mm-hmm. while hiccup sort of sorts out his feelings both for the tribe for his position in the community as well as for toothless so i've really liked astrid seeing her grow and then you know in this film it's it's almost not a question of if but when uh, the wedding will occur mm-hmm. because they they are pretty well suited they enjoy each other's company and they enjoy sort of roughing around here and there and the characters of hiccup and Astrid have really grown to genuinely like each other and i think that's important for a, a chief and a chieftain is so i really liked her and, and and she is as competent and badass as ever mm-hmm. she rides her dragon real well she's super good at combat she she is really not in any of that funny business that the other Vikings get up to all the time, you know. She's just really straight shooter. Oh. She's kind of reminds me of Ginny Weasley in that way. She's just really like <laughs> super competent, but also not, you know, doesn't boast about it. And, you know, Valka to we'll talk about I want to transition to talking about Valka real quick, but Valka's role in this film is sort of diminished, and I don't dislike that. I think they they use Volka well. Volka does not desire power. Volka is not going to be the outspoken mother of the chief who's secretly running the whole camp, right? Mm-hmm. She's she's chosen a backseat and she's just going to be there in an advisory capacity. Mm-hmm. She's there to point out what her son's emotional needs are. Mm-hmm. And when she when she does point them out, it's not for her herself to fix. She's, you know, sort of guiding Astrid to fix it. And and, and I think that it's something very sweet about, you know, Valka just getting to be Hiccup's mom in this movie. Mm-hmm, like, she, the, nobody's looking to her to make many decisions. She does at one point go out on her own to scout and to find Grimmel, which, you know, is very like, I was like, oh, here we go again. The movie's going to kill a parent, you know, like it's, <laughs> what's going to, what's going to, he's only got one left. But yeah, like Volka giving Astrid the encouragement, like the last remaining encouragement that Astrid needed to kind of be there for Hiccup during his struggles was really, really sweet. And so I like sort of that part of Hiccup's family. Hiccup just has, you know, it's it's so refreshing to see a character, uh, a male character, who has this much empathy for others and, and really is like not a jock be so supported by his community and be so loved by everyone he interacts with i i really find that to be very hopeful mm-hmm. i i love your points about valka and her usage in this movie i think it would have been really easy to have her an over presence in this movie after having her featured so prominently in the second one and i mean that was her role in the second one the, the second one was bringing his mom back and allowing her allowing Hiccup's parents to have this brief reunion together and to show how much they still love each other and for for stoic to show to Hiccup what ultimate sacrifice looks like and i mean hiccup in a way goes through a similar sort of self well no he goes through an exact self-sacrifice here he didn't let the light fury go with the expectation that she was going to come back and still save him he sacrifices himself to save other people to save people he loves and valka here is exactly what you said she's in the advisory capacity it's it's a perfect role for her she's integrated herself back in with the people of burke she's not off with the dragons by herself anymore she's 
part of the community and part of the the advisory council for the chief. And it's, it's a perfect fit for her without her not being in it enough. And then Astrid, uh, just to add my little piece, she she goes on a similar journey to Hiccup in this one, where they're both having to overcome sort of selfish tendencies and their selfish tendencies. They, they've clearly been together for a long time at this point, like in a romantic capacity, but neither one of them wanted to tie the knot because it was like the official final step between tying themselves to, I, I don't know, I'm, I don't know exactly where I was going with that, but it was like that would tie them down officially and then it would be a them and it wouldn't give them the chance to be as individual, I guess, is what their perception was. Yeah. And, and so they, yeah. they both had to overcome that. And by the end, that that marriage is a, a sign of maturity and a show of their love for each other. I think it's really great that they go on that journey together here and get the chance to prove themselves as a team. I, I like that a lot. And I think I think the, the answer is in sort of the beginning of the film, too, when they're talking about how they're always being raided. Burke mm-hmm. is always under constant threat. As a result of, you know, they're incorporating the dragons. Everybody wants the dragons. Everybody wants the Night Fury Alpha. And I think that the the really just the town, the times are too unstable for Astrid and Hiccup to have a union. It would be that it'd be purely selfish, you know, reasons to unite and marry when all the people are, you know, society is not calmed down one bit since the events of i guess the end of the first film so i think when their when their village is is more peaceful and calm and not at not at constant threat they themselves then allow themselves to you know kind of calm down and settle down a little bit absolutely and the one more thing about astrid for me there's this line from the first movie that she delivers and it's like it's my least favorite line of the movie. Well, she she has two lines in the first film that I just don't think, I don't know if it's delivery. I don't know if it's writing. There's just something about them that don't work for me. There's one where after Stoic has taken Toothless and they are going towards the dragon's den, they're going to fight the green death and all that has happened. And the kids are left behind on Burke. They are having a conversation and Astrid's all like, uh, you're the first one to ride one though. And I want to remember what you say right now and all that kind of stuff. And then she says, well, what are you going to do about it? And it, it's delivered just like that. And I never liked it. And there's another moment later, I don't need to mention, but she has that same line in this movie. And how much I dislike it in the first movie, it's the opposite how much I like it in this one, because it, it's in that same pivotal moment here where Valka has given her the encouragement to go talk to, to Hiccup, to, to prove themselves and their capabilities as a team, as a unit, as Vikings yep. together. And it culminates with her saying, what are you going to do about it? And it's delivered with strength and it's it's such a huge payoff for me because it works for me this time. And so I just wanted to highlight that because how, how much I disliked it in the first one, I like it all the more for this one. Love it. Yeah. Any other characters you want to mention? Uh, we, yes. We've got uh, Tough Nuts Beard that we've got to talk about at some it's, point. Tough Nuts Beard uh, <laughs> is a character to its own. Yeah, definitely pretty interesting stuff. Well, R- Rough Nut and Tough Nut are highlights of the trilogy, I think. Their animosity towards one another as, I guess, siblings, right? They mm-hmm. are siblings. They're twins. 
Twins, there you go. Mm-hmm. Tough Knight is, I, I mentioned, enjoyable. The unexpected subplot of him, like, deciding to, with zero experience, that he's going to uh, <laughs> coach Hiccup through being a man and, and lose the limp. Limps are weak. And he's like, I've got prosthetic <laughs> leg. What do you want from me? Or he says, like, I've been to three weddings. I crashed all yeah, of them. But... <laughs> exactly. The, the, the kind of guy who's going to give you advice, although he's, like, the least person qualified in the room, but played for laughs the yeah. film knows this the film knows that tough nut is ridiculous and the film knows that rough nut is ridiculous and rough nut i like her a whole hell of a lot and i enjoyed all of her bits in how to train your dragon 2 i also like that in how to train your dragon 3 she's still able to annoy those around her it sort of made a highlight <laughs> of how you know her tangential like her, the scene with her and grimmel is is superb and yeah. and but both for Grimmel as well. I mean, I think for and for the animation of his facial expressions, like when you when you're put into a room with somebody who's like, you know, just sort of the unexpected prisoner of like, oh God, what did I get myself into by by kidnapping her? <laughs> like I'm I'm out of my league. To then have it turn out where Roughnut, who is very carried away, she was very, very carried away by Eret in the second film and her and her pining for him really kind of blocked her 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 sense. And in this film, you know, her sort of being so happy that she annoyed Grimmel into letting her go blinded her from the fact that she was actually being tracked. And mm-hmm. I never look back, she says. <laughs> yeah, you know, so, so, great. so I was thrilled that, you know, these characters are far from perfect, and that's sort of the point, but you love them for their idiosyncrasies. You love them for who they are. They're just well-defined. And mm-hmm. and I, I just think another brilliant performance by Chris and Wig. Uh, just, just, <laughs> the character is so unapologetically ridiculous. Both Roughnut and Toughnut are, but they're different. Yeah. Any other characters? Fish legs. <laughs> yeah. I th- I feel like the only character who could love dragons as much as Hiccup does is Fishlegs. Yeah. And <laughs> if you'll notice, he's the one character that still retains a dragon at the end of the film. Does he? He's got a stuffed dragon, a stuffed oh, baby the dragon, stuffed dragon in his, uh, in his I pouch. I didn't realize that's great. He's got yeah. At the very end, it's like a you know, it's like in Monsters Incorporated where they have the boo uh-huh. in the costume that's like made from the couch cushion. Uh-huh. It's exactly like that kind of a creature with like googly eyes, and it's oh, that's hysterical. I missed that. I mean, it's so beautiful yeah. it's a it's a it's a beautiful thing fish leg really finds a like it's okay to point out that the vikings as a group have over relied on dragons uh-huh. but you know and okay this is why they have to go away like we're too reliant but fish legs i still have a stuffed animal or two from childhood like they're sentimental uh-huh. and that side of me is not something i bury and so to see fish legs just kind of you know, he's like the kid who needs a blanket. Like some kids just need a little extra, you know, and he, he chooses to really show his love for dragons in that way and mm-hmm. to have a physical companion. So I, I was just really touched by fish legs. I love that. I, I love in the first film how they really upped the sort of Dungeons and Dragons aspects of his character. Dauber asks, what do you need? And he says, plus five speed. <laughs> um, and, and here we see him geeking out from the very beginning. They, I don't remember exactly what the name of the dragon, but there's the dragon that ends up sort of adopting the, the baby that he's been carrying around all movie and having an affection for it. And Fishlegs gets to geek out over him, and it's really great. He's the one who continues to draw the sort of like trading cards with all the stats and everything on them and just 
just trace your toothless card except make it white. <laughs> and it's really it's really great. I love fish legs as well. Yeah. Now can can we dedicate I, I'm seriously asking for some time because I know we love this film. If you love something, you should also be able to talk about quite lovingly what doesn't work about it. Okay. I had just a couple of things I really want to like have a conversation with you about that I think work a little less well, but coming from a position of I still think this is the like the best of the trilogy. I still love this film. Okay. A couple of things. So the idea that Toothless would somehow immediately be the alpha of this hidden world where he had never been from before, you know, like even at Valka's Dragon Refuge, she had an alpha, and those alphas were huge. Those mm-hmm. alphas were massive. If this hidden world has existed for long before Toothless arrived, why should he all of a sudden be the king of the king and the king of dragons? I don't know if I have an answer. I can spitball one. Um, mm-hmm. I think that you could assume that all the dragons in existence came from this hidden world, and it seems that they have the ability to go to and from at will. And so maybe a lot of the dragons that Toothless comes across in, or yeah, Toothless comes across in the hidden world are dragons that have crossed their paths in the past at some point, maybe. I don't know. But sure, it's a question to ask. Yeah. I I think, too, like, it's possible that toothless's rarity in the real world is just reflected in the hidden world right like mm-hmm. so because grimmel has sort of hunted him his kind out of existence you've got this real rarity of of that that species of the night fury and so ooh, how about this so in how to train your dragon 2 there were the two alphas and one was killed and one went off presumably to, to live its life in peace after being enslaved by drago right. and now here we have the last night fury and maybe the last light fury and so the there are once again two and they're together and they are peaceful rulers <laughs> and they're together <laughs> and it mirrors the two alphas that we had in the previous film and so now they're joint alphas i don't know just a thought yeah i can i can see that i think yeah. i i think it makes sense for maybe it drives it home more for hiccup as well to see that toothless has this whole world that he can go rule mm-hmm. it's more of a parallel between hiccup himself being the chief of the vikings and then toothless all of a sudden ruling in the underworld but like an underworld hidden world but yeah like toothless here seeing him at the dead center of all of these millions of dragons in this entire way of life and he's like you know he's an outsider it was interesting to me but i think what's done really interesting is that when they inevitably like fall and cause a commotion toothless is i think a little bit worried that hiccup's presence there could maybe ruin everything mm-hmm. like i i think that although he's the alpha because he's new i got a sense during watching the movie that it's sort of an unsecured relationship and that the dragons could be spooked and mm-hmm. if they're spooked they might actually kick toothless out Right, they might kick him out, or they they clearly weren't listening to Toothless necessarily in that moment. He was having to shove back and forth against dragons and race other dragons who were trying to get to to Hiccup and Astrid first, and he was able to to sneak them out, get them out safely. So maybe he he has alpha like tendencies, but maybe isn't quite the ultimate alpha. But it, it would make sense that all the alpha, all the dragons that were at Burke already. They they recognize him him as Alpha, which is why they all went with him to the Hidden World. So maybe it's sort of like a restart for everybody, and he wasn't necessarily the Alpha of all of the dragons at the Hidden World. 
Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, a couple more things. So, Grimmel hunting down all the Night Furies. Mm-hmm. How can you be sure? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's it's such a wide world, right? Mm-hmm. And and if we look at Hiccup's map, which is way incomplete. And I mm-hmm. will say, earlier in the film, when Grimmel shows up at Burke and it's been deserted, Grimmel has a better map. Grimmel, mm-hmm. ha- Grimmel seems to have already mapped out, like it's the scroll, basically. Mm-hmm. It's not a bunch of little scratch pads glued together, probably with Hiccup spit. It's a scroll map, <laughs> so it's a little bit better map. But I'm still asking the question, can you really claim to have eliminated all the Night Furies? Like, <laughs> what hubris is that? What ego is that to assume that you've even put a dent in this species's population. I think that's a point. And he he even shows sort of the the his hubris in his introduction scene where the, the the trappers are like, well, there was this night fury, and he was like, impossible. And he at first just denies the even even the possibility that he could have missed one. But he did. And so it's perfectly reasonable to think maybe there are other night furies. But I mean, his vantage point in the sky, the the world is flat, you know? And so he has seen all the corners and he's seen all the places where the night furies <laughs> could be hiding. And yeah, Tweetless was the last one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, that that makes sense for me. Here's a question. So the Light Fury, I, I was really confused throughout this film a little bit in to what degree the Light Fury is under Grimmel's control? Because, honestly, apart from Grimmel letting her go in the beginning of the movie in order to lure Toothless in, there's not really a—and at the very end, when he actually sticks her with the vial and, and you know, mm-hmm. that whole thing, for most of the film, she actually appears to be quite free— Mm-hmm. I kept waiting for the moment where she tricks Toothless, like even during the mating scene or, or mating dance scene or or at any point, you know, with the, the bear trap that comes up. Like, I was absolutely expecting her to be sort of an evil dragon. But not only did that not pay off, it really seems almost like there wasn't a plan. Because Grimmel is not micromanaging the Light Fury's behavior. He just seems to think that because the Light Fury's in the picture, Toothless will be distracted enough for him to achieve his end. But he's not going to great lengths to actually control the Light Fury throughout the film, and that was confusing for me. Right, it's not Hades controlling Meg and Hercules. Exactly! But I think it was only intended for her to be a distraction and knowing that they mate for life he could assume that if toothless thinking he's the last night fury comes across one of his own kind then he would be very tempted no matter the relationship he has with hiccup to leave or if not to leave then to get out of the way for a little bit and that was enough for grimble to sort of infiltrate or to slow down the vikings and make his move so Again, I, I'm just spitballing things. I'm not saying I have answers. No, but no, I no. think these are all good questions to ask, for sure. It's, it's an interesting thing to consider, at least. Yeah, and, and, and speaking of fleshing out the map, Valka's refuge, where she had all the dragons, and, and I know the Alpha's dead, that refuge is never mentioned again as a place that either the Vikings can go to, or it, it just seems like it, it never happened, like it didn't exist. Like, I, I would have at least wanted a a, a shout-out towards that place. I mean, Vulcan knows where it is, could easily get there, ruled over it for, you know, 15 mm-hmm. years or whatever. Kind of didn't come up. Do you think it was big enough to house the entire village, though? I, 
somewhat i mean i wonder what i i forget how much like actual land there was there i it mm-hmm. seems as very when i look at it in my head it's like cloud city it's just like all clouds <laughs> but I, I know it hasn't even been that long since i last saw it but yeah I, I don't know that it would have been like a, a potential for new burke but i think you know if they're talking about overcrowding mm-hmm. there's certainly a haven for some of their excess dragons there and they could have yeah. had like a port city or something but but the, just the idea that it's never mentioned i found to be interesting yeah for sure um i i think there, there's certainly an argument to be made about how it could have been used as a place for excess dragons but no hiccups gotta have all of his dragons under his nose right there and <laughs> he won't have it any other way and you you mentioned i'm i'm wrapping up here the things that don't work uh but the the i mean they work i i, I like the film again quite a lot but you mentioned the new burke is a mile off the water right i, I turned to meg when i said i said once all the dragons left I said, how are they going to get water? <laughs> how are they going to fish? Uh-huh. There's a damn mile of cliffs beneath them. Like, they're a mile off the water. There's no way. Like, they've literally taken themselves to the most inhospitable. Like, you can't possibly get down to the water without falling to your death. And they don't have dragons to carry them there anymore. They don't. But they did have a pulley system for lowering canoes to sea level and all that. But when they first flew in, there's a lot of fresh water. I mean, they could be fishing in the fresh water to a certain extent. I don't don't know. It just just seems like the absolute... (laughs) Like geographically, that's the worst place for a strictly human settlement. Yeah, to be. I, I agree with that. It, it would definitely be difficult. It would be difficult. Like, oh, Imagine yeah, how long like, it would take for them to lower their canoes oh to sea my level God. and then and, pull and their the, hull back up. And the yeah, stamina yes. you'd need to lift a, a, a boat or something a, a, a thousand feet or whatever. Yeah. So, so it made perfect sense when the dragons were going to live there with them. Uh-huh. But once the dragons left, they should have just gone back to Old Burke. Like you know. I Again, I, I, I like the themes of rebirth, of growth, of finding a new place and really reestablishing who you are separate from dragons, etc. But uh-huh. that place is built for dragons. So <laughs> it, it was. I agree. I, I, okay, I okay, do not okay, disagree. At least okay. That's the one point where I was like, you know, the new place doesn't really... Okay, I'm glad. It's, it's inconvenient to say the yeah. least, but they, they yeah. are Viking and we know how stubborn they are and... They they like their new place, darn it, and they're not going to move again. <laughs> I mean, I guess they don't need to worry about getting raided. Like to to a point, like how I would describe that too is like, well, everyone knew where they were, right? They had right. a target on their back, and even if they did get rid of all their dragons and stay in Burke, people would probably seek after them for either their knowledge on how to do it, or it, you know, they'd really just because these people are elevated in a sense, among other humans, they live higher, mm-hmm. even though there's that line that, that Hiccup says at the end about dragons are still out there and we have to be worthy of them for them to come back. The people of Burke at least occupy a space where the other human clans aren't really going to bother them. Right. So I, I like that for the symbology of them being like elevated above everybody else and my final point here is really just um, the, the team uniting aspect of the people not working together. In the beginning of the film, I love that that is called out, that all these these cast of friends are really good friends, but they over-rely on their dragons, and they don't have a lot of strategy. They don't have combat strategy. They they don't have, like, tactical maneuvers. They, there was no solid plan for infiltration. Everybody's just like, we're going to fly in and take care of it. Mm-hmm. And... You know, to be honest, I don't think that really blew up in their face at all throughout the rest of the film. It's pointed out, but there's no point where they really have to band together as a huge group and succeed and they fail. 
I'm thinking about even when they go to Grimmel, when they go and find Grimmel and he eventually sets the whole place on fire and they have to escape, they all get out scot-free, no problem. Like their disorganization, which is made a point to be referenced, there's never a moment where it really bites them in the ass. Well, did you want another character death <laughs> after well, I, suffering? You know, you know what I was thinking is that Astrid's dragon was going to die. Ooh. I was I was very much off of the the How to Train Your Dragon two script here, and there'd be a major death of Astrid's dragon, and then she would have to convince the Light Fury to be her dragon, so that she and Hiccup Ooh. could live side by side with Toothless and the Light Fury as their dragon. But that there'd be a huge dragon death because of the uh, individual characters failure to band together that's where i thought it was going that would be a great alternate ending for sure like <laughs> the dragons don't leave and they just stay together and the yeah. light fury is astrid's and uh, that's be, what i that's where yeah. i thought it was headed but but i genuinely like that i was surprised mm-hmm. i love the message of the film i love the idea that like we're not ready for dragons you know i i just mm-hmm. i really love the message and and where it netted out i thought it was wonderful Going on to music, I'm not going to talk about it too long, (laughs) and I'm not going to play any clips because I could for a long time, and I I won't. I will say that the new material here is all fantastic. I love the Once There Were Dragons theme that we hear a few times throughout the film. The first date music that is played when we hear it actually after Toothless sees the Light Fury for the first time in a small snippet, and then it's played out in full in sort of a, a, a mimic of the Forbidden Friendship scene, except this is between Toothless and the Light Fury, and they're trying to acclimate to each other. And so I love that music. It's really fun. And then when they get to the hidden world, the sort of ethereal, atmospheric kind of music that plays there is not melodic. It's it's just atmospheric. And that is the perfect integration of Yonsi into the score here. It's not a pop song like we got in the beginning of two, which I, I thought was a great integration of a pop song. It was like just a, a nice opening to the film. They integrated some of the music from the first film into that song. It worked really well as we see Hiccup and Toothless House in sync they are after all that time together. We don't get that kind of song here we get an end credit song from yonsi but we we hear yonsi in the hidden world scene and it's it's just a perfect touch in building that space after using yonsi these past couple films to sort of fill up the world and then a couple of callbacks to existing themes they don't use the romantic flight theme the the love theme between astrid and hiccup too much in this movie but the place where it is best used i think is in that final fight for the dragons when they have glided onto the the into the fleet of ships and we see astrid and hiccup sort of tag team the fight perfectly in sync with each other almost the way that hiccup and toothless usually would have teamed up together Ah. perfectly in sync and so it's a, a great Again, mimic of what we've seen before, but this time between two different characters and showing how great a team they are together. And it's accented perfectly with their love theme from the first movie. We get the test drive callback when the Light Fury catches Hiccup. That's the scene I mentioned earlier. And we get the Viking theme returned. I think it's only played one time. Maybe maybe it might appear in other places, but we hear the Viking theme. When we get to the ending scene and Hiccup is telling his children about how there used to be dragons when he was a boy. And I just love all those musical moments. John Powell is a master. All three of his scores for these movies are perfect. Even if the movies aren't necessarily exactly perfect, I think his scores are fantastic. And if you have not listened, definitely do. And there is actually an album that I want to recommend. It is a P 
Piano Solos album. It is called Piano Solos from How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. And it is arranged and performed by a pianist named Batu Sener, B-A-T-U-S-E-N-E-R. I will link that in the show notes. And it's lots of music from this movie that is just simply played on piano. And it is beautiful. And I use it to go to sleep or to just find some peace in the moment. And (sighs) it's really great. I love everything about that. Honestly, hearing you talk about the tracks in this film and in the previous two films is so inspiring. And I I have to rewatch these films just with an eye, these two films, uh, just with an eye on... (laughs) The music of, uh, the, the, the you know, because it's amazing. And, and that's everything that I look for in a composer who comes back to score multiple films is mm-hmm. growth and and return to theme and, and all that kind of stuff. So, it, like, I was very invested in story because it was the first time watching. But, you know, mm-hmm. the music, which was certainly competent and engaging, for me, hearing you talk about it reminds me about, really just points out how many more layers there are to it and to enjoy in this film this will be a, a film trilogy that i rewatch on the ridge i think you called it a trilogy that time I, I i'm glad We're, we will win you over by the end of this <laughs> i feel like i'm going too hard on on tucson i'm scaling it back a little bit okay well let's talk about sort of the impact of this movie a couple of things i just want to say because we've talked about them a little bit and then i'll let you have your turn there's hiccups continued path to finding who he is growing up those similar themes that we've seen him hiccup what i love has individual arcs in this trilogy in each film but really it's an overall growth into who he is and where he belongs among his people and it's fantastic watching him on that journey um and then on sort of just a more like macro level something that applies to everybody it's about finding your identity in each other and finding strength in each other rather than in things not that dragons are things but they were a tool for these people and they they used it to build up their society and to form not only relationships with their dragons but also with each other and in letting go of the dragons yes they lost something but they also gained a lot in trusting in each other more yeah i agree with that do you have anything you want to add i I have i have a longer point that i I will be on for just a moment but i'll I'll let you go first (laughs) oh yeah i mean i i just in general the way that this film does communal relations what makes a healthy community and what makes a healthy family i think is a very impactful kind of experience for me to see you see it done well and you know really for this film to end showing hiccups family and toothless's family and a big thing about this series is that dragons are cats but the Mm -hmm. seeing two cats of a different color two dragons the night fury and the light fury mate and have their kids have like be black with a white stomach with Mm -hmm. like a white belly or the white the white one with the black like i'm just like seeing the mix and just be like you know a a regular litter of any other animal was Mm -hmm. very 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 amusing to me almost to no (laughs) end like i'm grinning ear to ear right now thinking Uh of how toothless and the light fury's kids are just like just little <laughs> versions of them and yeah so the, the ending with with Ath- uh, astrid uh, ending with astrid ending with astrid <laughs> and uh hiccups family they're 
son and daughter and then Toothless's kids and the the sort of reintroduction of Toothless to a bearded Hiccup. I, mm-hmm. I, I almost thought for a minute Toothless was going to cough and burn Hiccup's beard off so he looks more <laughs> like that would have been a good alternate ending. I would I would have I would have wanted that to have happened because like, I was like, wait, who are you? I need a fan edit. <laughs> but yeah, the re-meeting after so much time has passed. And let me tell you, I'm only 32, but mm-hmm. I have had those years go by when I haven't seen someone, even some, even a family member, somebody I've cared about deeply. And when you, that first moment when you see them again, and it all comes flooding back, and you know your your love for them really hasn't waned over the years, but like now's the place where you get to show it. Now's the place where you get to show your affection. I assume it's also the feeling I'm going to feel when COVID is over, and I just get to see all my friends again. Mm-hmm. Separated Absolutely. for years, just the impact of. The ones you love coming back to you, it's never not going to make me cry. It's never not going to make me think about what the best parts of being human are. So I'm very grateful for this series for for showing that and and going bold with it, mm-hmm. you know, really, really showing a leader let go of one of his closest friends because it was the right thing. And then, again, I said earlier, broken record, but being rewarded for that choice and having it still have a happy ending is very, very impactful. I have just a couple more things, and they go on, along similar lines. This movie points out the flaws in humanity, and it, specifically in the vein of hunting and preservation. Now, I'm not here to pass judgment on anybody who does enjoy hunting for sport necessarily, unless you're a big game hunter, in which case, well, I might have some words for you. <laughs> but this movie is pointing out that there's always going to be another Grimmel or another Drago Bloodvist. Neither Burke nor their dragons would have been safe as long as they were together. There was always going to be somebody new. Even in the Mile High Island, there would have been something to contest them. (laughs) And there are people out there who disagree with them, who disagree with the notion of humans and dragons having a symbiotic relationship with each other. So there was no other outcome possible for them in which they they ended up better for it without them saying goodbye to each other, without them splitting. And so I think there's a, a lot to say in this movie about preservation and about doing your best for your environment and, and, and preserving species and stopping hunting in in those instances. So there's that. But then I wanted to talk about just sort of the greater impact of the trilogy. And, you know, there, there's some some movies that you watch and you're attached to them and you you can't always explain why. Back to the Future is maybe that movie for me. It's just always been my favorite movie since I was a kid. And I don't think that would ever change for me. And as much as I love that movie, I don't know if I could always just completely write down what it is specifically about that movie that I'm so drawn to. And I think uh, largely the same thing with this one. I was attached to this movie long before I got a black cat. In fact, I got a black cat because I was attached to this movie. Hmm. I mean, when I, when I first got my cat, I was going to name him Toothless, but then Tucker was his name already and it was perfect. So anyways, as I said earlier, this is right up with Back to the Future, right up with Toy Story, Lord of the Rings with my favorite trilogies ever made. Only Toy Story makes me cry as much as this one does. In fact, this one, I think, makes me cry more than Toy Story. Toy Story 3 always tears me up because I I grew up with Andy, and I'm sure you did too, but specifically when Toy Story 3 came out, I just graduated high school and Andy was graduating high school. Toy Story 4, the ending of that one makes me cry a whole lot too, but we're talking about trilogies here. But the (laughs) the thing about the end of Toy Story 3... And maybe why, in some ways, Toy Story 4's ending is more emotional for me. There wasn't a real, quote, real relationship between Andy and his toys. They both mutually benefited from each other, but it's it's not the same. They they didn't have 
back and forth interaction where they built relationships and bonds with each other. But here in How to Train Your Dragon, these are people who have bonded with their dragons emotionally. And those are real bonds that are being tested as they recognize what is best for each other, which is that separation, which is going their separate ways and and making dragons the things of lore. And I, I love how they tie that into how this could be the same universe that we're living in. This is why dragons are rumors. This is why dragons are tall tales. I love that. But going to the finale scene, which you were talking about a minute ago, I think that this movie would be lesser if it weren't for the reunion scene. I could see where some people might say, oh, well, the, the reunion makes it worse, actually, because then why does it? Why did they say goodbye? Like, you know, like, the reunion yeah. ruins the goodbye. Well, no, it doesn't, because it shows that, yes, separation was best for all involved. They both had to move on with their lives and both had to find that companionship and build a family. But in that reunion, it shows that the bond between them is not broken, despite them being separate. It's not like at, that, at the end of that reunion, they went home together again. They said goodbye, probably for another long time, if not forever. And the mimicking of the forbidden friendship touch again with Toothless this time with Hiccup and Astrid's kids. Oh, that is that is so perfect. That's so beautiful. And it's showing the relationship that is possible between man and beast, whether it's dragons or some other pet. And you see that both Hiccup and Toothless have found fulfillment away from each other, but the love they have is still there. And that that that's sort of my my final thoughts. And that's that's something that that draws me to this trilogy and these movies and I love them. So, uh, anything else to add? The only thing I, I thought of is they really didn't give a lot to Snotlout in this uh, version, in this iteration, this third one. They tried to give him Hiccup's mom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, I, it was weird. I, I like it cause it's unexpected. And yeah, they, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but other than that, I, they really didn't give him much to do, but yeah, but no. yeah, it's one of those things. It's life is funny sometimes kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Valka was very gracious. With, yeah, she was. This <laughs> is very, very gracious about it all. But, but yeah. So I, I'm, I'm just really thrilled. I want to appeal to you directly, or not appeal. I want to thank you directly for sharing this this series that you love with me. I feel very grateful, and I'm, I'm glad to also just get the the forum to talk about it. Yes, I'm glad you watched it. I'm glad you humored me and 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 enjoyed it in the end. I mean, I haven't talked this passionately about a movie on Cinescope, I think, in a long time. Despite loving every movie we talk about, right. this, this one's really special for me. And so I'm glad to be ringing in episode 100 very soon with another wrap-up of just the trilogy as a whole, where we go back and talk about the first one again, but that's a different story that we'll tell another time. Uh, And that is the end of this episode, which is the 99th episode of Cinescope. Thank you, Eric, so much for talking with me. Uh, It's nice to have you on the show so many times over these 100 episodes, and I'm looking forward to many, many more. Agreed, 100%. Contact for this show. There's facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast at Cinescope pod on Twitter. It would be very gracious of everybody as we approach our 100th episode to go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. Hit that subscribe button. It would be so helpful to us as we continue to try and build the audience. If you have any feedback that you would like to give me directly in a more private way, you could always email the podcast email, which is thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. And Eric, how about you tell us about your projects and things you got going on and where we can find you? Yeah, so you can actually find me on Twitter. I am at Spielerman, S-P-I-E-L-E-R 
M-A-N. I have a weekly Harry Potter podcast called MuggleCast at MuggleCast on Twitter. But my personal podcast, of which Chad is a recurring, now recurring guest... Yeah. We recently just talked about, we did a, a fan casting episode for the upcoming adaptation on HBO of PlayStation's The Last of Us. You know, I have so many ideas for things for you and I to talk about on that pod that has nothing to do with The Last of Us, but because you joined me for the very first launch episode of the podcast where we re- reviewed and went in depth of The Last of Us 2, which had just come out at that time, uh, it was thrilling to have you back on for a little bit of fan casting and also talking about expectations of what we wanted you know what we want out of the tv series so i thought it was a really good episode and that's over at thank you for spieling which can be found wherever podcasts are found i know we're on spotify and apple podcasts and all that Awesome. Yeah. Go check out Eric's podcast. I, I listen to the episodes that I'm not on too. So yeah, it's <laughs> definitely the, worth that's listening. The biggest, that's honestly the biggest vote uh, of, of the biggest, uh, you know, mark of, of quality is when the guests will also listen to the other episodes. <laughs> I mean, I always in making my own podcast seek to make a show that I would like to listen to. And I have no shame in admitting I sometimes go back to my old podcast episodes and listen because I'm curious what not only what I had to say, but what other people had to say too. And so I I am happy to be on your show where I know that we are going to have good discussions together, but I can also listen to the other episodes and you're going to have good discussions with other people. So I always look forward to seeing your episodes pop up in my podcast feed. So thank you, Eric, for having me on, but thank you for a great podcast and MuggleCast. We've talked about how important that show is to me as well. So thank you for, thank you for podcasting. Thank you for spilling <laughs> is welcome, what I'm buddy. really saying. And, and thank you for podcasting. <laughs> and I, I really always love coming back on Cinescope. So, uh, you know, you'll, we'll be hearing more of me soon. Yes, very sure. Very soon. Best place to plug my social media real quick at Shadada on Twitter. There's also my other podcasts. There is an American workplace, which is wrapped and we have finished airing all of our bonus content as we approach the uh, big download milestone. I, I, I won't necessarily disclose it here, but big download milestone coming up on that podcast, even though it's finished, which is great. You can find it where podcasts can be found in workplacepodcast.com. There's my other podcast, Crossroads of Destiny, where my best friends and I are talking about every episode of Avatar The Last Airbender and then following that all of its continuing media and you can find that at xroadspod on Twitter xroadspod.com and all places where podcasts can be found and once again that is everything contact information can be found in the show notes and at thecinescopepodcast.com thank you Eric so much and goodbye and have fun and celebrate movies everybody thank you bye bye